Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Ancestor, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Ancestor is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash ancestor. December 3rd, 10.45 p.m. Magnus finished wrapping the duct tape around Clayton's ankles, firmly securing him to the folding chair. He'd already taped Clayton's hands behind him. The security room's harsh, fluorescent lighting played off the old man's swelling left eye. Clayton's head hung down, wobbling each time he was bumped. The head lifted a bit. Clayton blinked rapidly, seemed to snap out of it. Someone help me! Get this crazy fucker off me! No confusion. He knew where he was. He knew what had happened. Magnus slapped him, rocking the old man's head back and drawing blood from his lower lip. No one is here, Clayton. Gunther is in the fire tower. Colding is dead by now. The only person coming back here is Andy, and we know how much he loves you. Clayton spit blood onto the security room's floor. Magnus had arrived first, then just sat in the dark security room and waited. Clayton had come alone, turned on the lights, then Magnus hit him and it was lights out. Couldn't have been easier. Magnus walked to the weapons rack and grabbed one of the compact MP5 submachine guns. He clipped on a gun strap, loaded the weapon, then set it on the ground. The time for civility had ended. Now it was time to add a new knife to his collection. Magnus grabbed one of the white K-bar boxes. He opened it and looked at the round handle made of stacked leather washers, looked at the leather sheath. New knives had that smell. He dropped the box, then ran his belt through the sheath's loop. It hung nicely on his left side. Only when it was securely in place did he grip the handle and pull. The seven-inch, flat black blade seemed to smile at him. The knife reflected no light save for the thin, razor-sharp edge. I know you, Magnus said to the knife. He held the knife with his right hand. With his left, he picked up the MP5. The weapons felt solid in his hands, balanced, real. A lot of variables were flying around, for certain, maybe too many things to process all at once, but he always knew what to do with the knife. The knife made decisions easy. He walked in front of Clayton and set the knife on the floor. The old man stared at it. He was very afraid, clearly, but that angry, defiant attitude still exuded from his every fiber. Clayton, I don't have a lot of time. I've done this before, many times. I know exactly how to get what I want. It's better for you if you just cooperate. Do you understand? Clayton said nothing. Where did you hide Sarah Perinam? Did you look up your asshole? Oh, wait! Your head is already there, so you'd have seen her by now. Insolent old bastard. Magnus had something special for him. He slung the MP5 over his shoulder and walked back to the weapons rack. There, he screwed a torch tip onto a can of propane. He opened the valve, took a lighter off the shelf, and walked in front of Clayton again. Clayton saw the propane can, 
heard the hiss of gas, and shook his head. He understood. Don't you fucking do it, you sick fuck! Magnus flicked the lighter. The torch's pointy blue flame snapped into existence. He put the lighter in his pocket. Magnus had a philosophy when it came to torture. Seeing is believing, but feeling is faith. He picked up the knife and held the blade in front of the flame. Usually, he did this part in the dark, letting the blowtorch flame be the only illumination up until the blade glowed red. It was a great psychological motivator before the cutting began, but he simply didn't have time for the extras. Last chance, Magnus said, as he gently moved the flame up and down the seven-inch K-bar blade. You're going to tell me what I want to know. The only question is how badly you'll be burned when you finally talk. Just do it, Clayton hissed, his eyes squeezed wrinkle-tight in anticipation of agony. Cowards die many times before their deaths. De Valiant never taste of death but once, eh? The quote came out of nowhere, so random it made Magnus lower the torch. I'm shocked. You know Julius Caesar? Never met him, Clayton said, his eyes still scrunched tight. Kerouac said that shit to me once when we were nailing whores down in Copper Harbor. Typical American. So crude. But crude or not. This old man was tougher than Magnus had suspected. Talking would just waste time unless parameters were established. Magnus closed the torch valve and set the propane canister on the ground. He walked behind Clayton. He grabbed the old man's right pinky and slid the hot blade into the skin. Blood poured out, hissing against the blade. Clayton screamed as the blade dug down to the bone. Blood spurted. The smell of burned flesh filled the air. Clayton thrashed in his chair and kept screaming, but Magnus didn't stop. He bent and twisted the pinky as he cut, pulling it against the base knuckle. Just like bending a hot wing in half. Blood splattered to the floor as something snapped and a piece of gristle popped out. Two more knife strokes through the last bits of flesh. The pinky came right off. Magnus walked in front of Clayton, tossing the bloody finger up and down in his palm. Tears covered Clayton's cheeks. Blood streamed from a deep cut in his lower lip where he'd bitten through it. He didn't look hateful or insolent or tough anymore. He just looked old. You've got nine left, Magnus said. Ready to talk? Clayton nodded. Good. Who is with Sarah? Just Jim Feely. The rest are dead. What about Roomkorf? Is he with them? Clayton shook his head. Are you sure, Clayton? The old man nodded. He's dead. Sarah said he blew up like the others. Was the old man lying? It was possible that Roomkorf and Pernam were separated in the crash. Tell me how the C-5 got back here. They crashed on Rappelgy Bay. Thick ice. A bomb. They got out and the whole thing blew up. Melted through the ice. That fit. If Sarah had brought it down right before the bomb went off, there would be panic as everyone tried to escape. Roomkorf could have gotten separated. Sarah had put the C-5 on the ice, then let it sink away. That filthy whore had ruined all of his careful plans 
all of his meticulous work. Tell me where they are, Magnus said. Clayton did. Magnus reached inside Clayton's snowsuit, down to his belt, and pulled out the man's thick ring of keys. You don't mind if I borrow your ride, do you, Pops? The BV-206 was enclosed and fairly well-armored. A snowmobile was faster, but unprotected, and Sarah had a Beretta. Magnus grabbed a duffel bag and quickly stuffed it with MP5 magazines, a backup Beretta, and a first aid kit. Plastique and timers went in the bag as well, just in case Sarah had created a defensible position. And what if he needed info from her? He threw in the propane torch and slung the duffel over his shoulder. Then his eyes fell to the black canvas bag on the bottom shelf of the weapons rack. Fisher might come early, never knew. It helped to be prepared for any contingency. He took that bag as well. Magnus walked to the door, then turned, taking one more look at the beaten old man. It was always best to leave subjects alive until you were sure you had correct intel. Leave them in the darkness and silence, so they could focus on nothing but the pain. Someone might be tough enough to resist questioning the first few minutes after losing a finger, but after two or three hours of feeling that agony and fearing what would come next, they always told the truth. I'm going to leave you here, Magnus said. I'll come back if you forgot anything. He reached up and flicked off the lights. Magnus shut the door on the dark security room. He didn't know what was keeping Andy, or if the man was even alive, but Sarah Puranam and Tim Feely were just a short snowmobile ride away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. December 3rd, 11.07 p.m. Gary Detweiler had never seen conditions like this. A hard wind kicked up ten-foot swells. Chunks of ice floated everywhere. Although there probably wasn't a chunk large enough to hurt the auto, too, he sure as hell didn't want to find out while doing 20 knots. Once he had the island in sight, he turned off his running lights, navigating with GPS and a pair of night vision goggles. Thick clouds hid the stars and kept the moon to a faint glow, but it was enough illumination for the goggles to show his way in varying shades of neon green. The closer he got to the harbor, the thicker the ice became. Baseball-sized chunks collected like tightly packed flotsam, making the water look like an undulating solid, rising with each wave, dipping with each trough. The auto too cut through the surface, leaving behind it a path of clear water that lasted only seconds before the churning ice chunks closed in again. Chunky waves splashed against the pylons at the harbor's entrance. Actually, they splashed against 20 feet of lumpy, solid ice that spread out from the pylons. Gary shook his head in amazement. If this cold continued, the harbor entrance might very well freeze shut in a day or so. 
After that, the whole harbor would ice over in a matter of hours. That very thing had happened back in the winter of 68, or so his father told him. Gary pulled back on the throttle, reducing speed and, more important, reducing noise. The wind was loud enough to hide the engine gurgle, unless someone was waiting for him on the dock. The Auto Two slid through the icy harbor entrance. Beyond the walls, the waves dropped to three feet. He could barely believe his eyes. Like the pylons, the shore and dock had extended with a good 30 feet of rough ice. Waves constantly tossed water and fresh chunks onto this frozen, growing shoreline. And beyond it, a psycho with a gun. Correction, guns, and a lot of them. But that didn't matter. Gary's father needed him. Those people needed him. All he had to do was get on the island, make it to the church, then bring them back. Once in the boat and away from the island, they'd be safe. He couldn't actually dock. The ice was probably too thick there, but it would be thinner out where it met open water. Somewhere in the middle, it would be solid enough to support his weight. He moved the throttle forward, just a bit, increasing speed. The boat crushed the leading edge of ice with a noticeable crackling sound. That sound quickly turned to a definitive crunch, then to a grind as the boat slowed, pushing up sheets of half-inch thick ice as it went. Finally, 15 feet from the dock, the Auto 2 stopped. Gary killed the motor, leaving him alone with the howl of the wind and the steady, styrofoam squeaking sound of wave-driven ice grinding against wave-driven ice. He pulled on an orange life jacket. Without it, if he fell through into the frigid water, he'd stand little chance of surviving long enough to get back inside the boat's heated cabin. He grabbed a gaff pole and walked to the bow, testing the tip against the ice. It seemed thick enough to hold his weight. Keeping his weight on the bow, Gary swung one leg over the edge, pressed his foot against the ice, and pushed. It held. He put his other foot down, but kept his chest and both arms in the boat. He pushed harder, making the surface carry more of his weight. Still the ice held. Waves splashed water and ice chunks at his feet. He swallowed hard and slowly transferred his weight, keeping his hands on the bow railing in case his feet suddenly plunged through. The ice held. He slid one foot at a time over the ice, taking care to spread his weight across both feet. The danger zone was likely only the next few yards. At the dock, the ice had to be at least six inches thick, strong enough to support a dozen men. Ten feet from the boat, the ice cracked under his left foot. Water gurgled up through the thin fissures. Gary stood motionless, waiting in that infinite forever just before the ice would give way. Still, it held. He slid his left foot forward, past the watery cracks. After a few more sliding steps, he knew he was safe and strode cautiously toward the dock. During the day, the snow-covered island might have been a thing of beauty, but in the dark, through the night vision glasses, it looked like a green-tinted nuclear wasteland. Wind drove wisps of powder across the beach. Snow-covered pine trees looked like heavy monsters trapped in thick green-white goo. Gary felt for the lump on his left side, under the snowsuit. The gun's firmness gave him comfort. He walked to the shed at the base of the dock. 
His skidoo snowmobile would quickly cover the one-mile trip to the ghost town. Walking would be quieter, more discreet, but Magnus Paglione was out there, and Gary didn't feel like getting into a foot race for his life. Somehow he suspected a former Special Forces killer was in better shape than a stoner beach bum. He kicked through a snowdrift, blocking the shed, and slid inside. The skidoo motor gurgled and died on the first two tries. On the third, it roared to life. He tossed the life jacket aside. If he had to run or hide, fluorescent orange wasn't the best color. Gary drove out onto the trail, moving slow, trying to keep the engine as quiet as possible. He kept the lights off, using the night vision goggles to guide his way. The skidoo glided through the inch or two of snow that had accumulated since the road had last been plowed. Dark woods rose up on both sides like canyon walls. In just over three minutes, Gary saw the church tower through the trees. He took off the goggles. He unzipped his snowsuit, pulled out a flashlight, pointed it at the tower, and flashed twice. Sarah and Tim sat huddled together under three blankets that did little to ward off the cold wind blowing through the bell tower turret. When Sarah saw the double flash come from the dark path leading to the harbor, it seemed unbelievable at first, somehow fake. The second double flash, however, made it real. No fucking way, Tim said. Way, Sarah said. She lifted her own flashlight, a clumsy maneuver, thanks to Clayton's thick mittens, and gave two answering flashes. She set the flashlight down and picked up the binoculars, sweeping the dimly lit town square. Gary saw the two flashes. He had to be careful. Could be Magnus up there, tricking Gary into coming in. He patted the gun again just to be sure it was there. This was crazy. Really fucking crazy. He was a barfly boat driver who dealt a little pot on the side, not some action star like Uncle Clint. Gary put the flashlight away and put the night vision goggles back on. No way to really know who was in that turret. Setting up for a fast getaway would be smart. He turned his skidoo around, leaving it just past the edge of town with the nose pointed back down the road. He slid off the sled. Now or never. His dad needed him. One quick walk to the church and back, and it would be all but over. He reached the edge of town before he saw movement. Sarah lowered the binoculars. What the hell is that? What the hell is what? Tim reached for the binoculars, but Sarah slapped his hand away. She looked through them again. Down there in the darkness, something was moving. Something big lurking around in the trees at the outskirts of the small town. Oh, no, she said quietly. Oh, my God, no. Gary froze. He half-hoped there was something wrong with the night vision goggles, but he knew they were working just fine. At the edge of town, near the lodge, less than a hundred feet away, a bear? No, the head was too big way too big. Through the goggles, the thing's black-patched white fur glowed an unearthly pale green. Something on its back kept popping up and down. It opened its eyes wide. 
Gary knew this because the night vision suddenly showed two glowing white-green spots in the middle of that big head. It was looking at him, mouth half open, long, pointed teeth glowing like wet emeralds. Run, you idiot, Sarah whispered. God damn it, don't you see them? The man stayed perfectly still, staring at the shadowy something near the corner of the lodge. He obviously didn't see the others. Sarah offhandedly estimated at least 20, closing in on him from all sides of town. Sarah, Tim hissed. What the hell? Come on! She handed him the binoculars and pointed. Tell me I'm crazy. Tell me those aren't what I think they are. Tim stared for only a second. Oh, fuck me running. No way. That wasn't what Sarah wanted to hear. She started scanning the town, the horizon, looking for something she could use to help the man. Wind whistled through the snow-covered pines. Gary slowly took off a mitten, keeping his eyes focused on the bare thing by the lodge. If he didn't get Sarah and Tim out now, they'd be trapped for days. He didn't know exactly what the animal was, but it was just an animal. He was a human with a gun. He slowly reached into his snowsuit, trying to control his fear, trying to stay calm. He heard a branch break somewhere off to his left. It registered that it would have to be a big branch to be heard over the wind. A really big branch. Gary turned, his chest roiling, already knowing what he'd see. Seventy-five feet away, at the edge of the woods, another of the big-mouthed bear creatures glowed green in the night vision light. It, too, was looking right at him. What little bravery Gary possessed instantly evaporated. Were there more? How many more? Staying very, very still, he swept the landscape. A third by the hunter shop. A fourth and fifth near the church. A sixth at the edge of the woods on his right. Gary Detweiler turned and ran as fast as the bulky snowsuit would allow, his legs swish-swishing against each other in a dark parody of a child's wintertime play. Sarah took careful aim at the lead creature chasing Gary Detweiler. A sudden blow knocked her into a pillar. Strong, bony fingers covered her mouth. Tim had tackled her. Sarah angrily brought up her hands to shove the man, but Tim leaned in so close his lips pressed against her ear. Don't move, he hissed. Keep still. There are more right below us. She pushed him off, but stayed quiet. She slowly looked over the parapet and down the side of the church tower. Sarah's eyes widened in surprise and fear. Against the suffused gray-white moonlight glow of the snow-covered ground, she counted seven of the creatures. They were all looking up into the church tower. They're looking right at us. It seemed that way at first, but Sarah realized the creatures were turning their heads, searching. They weren't looking at her, but they sure as hell were looking for her. A roar, deep and jagged and hateful and savage, erupted from the path that led to the dock. When he heard the first roar, his heart seemed to stop, but his feet weren't as dumb. They kept pumping. Gary sprinted for his life. Another roar, closer this time. 
he poured all his energy into the sprint, heavy boots slamming against the snow-covered ground, arms pumping, legs churning. Like an Old West gunslinger mounting his horse, Gary leaped and spread his legs, landing butt-first on the soft skidoo seat. The now-warm machine fired up on the first try, and he gunned the throttle, shooting down the path. More of them, oh fuck, how many are there, poured out of the tree canyon walls, coming at him from all sides. Speed carried him past their muscular, heaving bodies. The journey that had taken five minutes while putt-putting along took just over a minute with the throttle locked wide open. The dune crest rose before him, and beyond it would be his boat. Another one. It came from the harbor side of the dune, stopped on the crest, crouched like a tennis player, waiting to return a serve. Gary slowed, banked hard right, and drove at an angle toward the crest. The monster took its own angle down the dune face, trying to cut him off. When it almost reached the sled, Gary opened up the throttle full out. The monster curved its pursuit path to correct, but Gary was already past. He banked hard left just in time to sail over the dune ridge, catching big air, the boat now before him like a beacon of hope. So close. He hit the ground and pumped the brakes. The skidoo skidded and slid. Gary was off it and running before the machine even stopped moving. Another roar, Jesus, oh shit, oh God, not more than a few feet behind him. So close that going for his gun would slow him down too much and the thing with the huge mouth would be on him. Gary sprinted down the dock, his steps vibrating the ice-crusted wood. He counted six steps before he felt the heavy vibrations of the creature's pounding feet. He reached the dock's end and leapt like a long jumper. Behind him, the dock rattled as something massive pushed off. In midair, huge jaws closed around his chest. He felt a dozen piercing pokes and a crushing pressure. Then he smashed into ice as hard as a concrete floor. The ice seemed to hold for just a second, a fraction of a second, then cracked like a trapdoor, dropping them into the frigid water. Cold stunned him. His breath locked in his chest, frozen just like the ice covering the bay. The biting pressure dropped away. Swim or die. He kicked hard. The water soaked into his snowsuit, turning it into a lead coat that pulled him down. He kicked harder. His head popped above the surface. He forced one short, desperate breath. Like jaws coming up from the depths, the creature surfaced next to him, giant mouth gasping for air, huge clawed paws splashing at the water and fighting for purchase on thin ice that shattered from each blow. Gary tried to swim. His arms and legs seemed slow to react. It was like swimming in quicksand. His head slipped under again. He fought to rise, but the snowsuit seemed to drag him down as surely as an anchor. Swim or die! He snarled and kicked harder, forcing his body to the surface. He was so close, only a few feet from the boat. Behind him, the creature slid beneath the waves for the last time. Gary looked over his shoulder, knowing he only had seconds to live, knowing he had to concentrate, but he couldn't stop himself. Cow-skinned creatures covered the dock. Diffuse moonlight played off their white fur, soaked into black patches as dark as the night itself. Dozens of monsters, packed at the edge, looking down at Gary with black eyes. They weren't coming in after him. He was almost there. He tried to swim, 
but his muscles simply stopped obeying his commands. His throat locked up as if plugged by a cork. He couldn't take in air. The waterlogged snowsuit pulled him down again. He reached out one more time, stretching for the ladder on the back of the auto, too. Wet, slick mittens hit the bottom rung and slid off. His hand fell away and water filled his mouth. Swim or... Sarah and Tim watched the seven cowskin creatures moving around the outside of the church, sniffing, looking, listening. They weren't leaving. You're the expert, Sarah whispered in an almost inaudible voice. What do we do? Tim slowly shook his head and shrugged. The ancestors stopped their sniffing. They lifted their heads and looked north. The creatures all seemed to hear something. Sarah listened and a few seconds later she heard it too. A faint, faraway sound. The sound of an engine. As a unit, the creatures headed for the noise. Sarah watched them go, watched their odd, squat, waddling gait as they disappeared into the woods. You have been listening to Ancestor by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.